Well, hi again. Good morning, Central. How's everyone doing? Good. Awesome. Good to see you. So uh, 11 months ago, I started a sermon by asking a question. What do you want? What do you really desire? Everyone remember that? Obviously, of course, everyone remembers that. Let me, let me remind you, uh, it was actually a sermon about lust. So that was a popular one. Um, just, just, just so you know, in case you weren't uh, in the room, uh, I want to clarify, I am anti-lust. That is my official position on that issue, in case there was any doubt. But, but today I'm asking a different question. What do you need? Uh, when I was raising my kids, I would sometimes quote the famous philosopher Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need, right? That's, that's kind of fundamental in, in growing up is to, to teach our kids the, the difference between what they want and what they need, right? Now, don't worry, this isn't like a Dave Ramsey class. I'm not going to lecture you on buying things that you don't really need. But I am going to ask you this question. If you had to, to come up with a list of the things that you need to survive and to thrive, what would that list look like? Here's one psychologist uh, who took a shot at this. It's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You maybe remember this from like freshman psych class. Uh, at, the, at the base of the pyramid, he's got just the, the basic physiological needs like air and, and water and food. I suppose gravity should be on there. Um, but uh, people over the years have added, they've, they've put things on the top of the pyramid like, like beauty and transcendence. So, so the pyramid has gotten taller over the years, but I want to focus on, on kind of some of those middle sections of the pyramid today. Author and researcher and youth ministry guru, Kara Powell, says that teenagers are asking three important questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference can I make? They're essentially expressing three deep needs, identity, belonging, and purpose. Who am I? That's about my identity. Where do I fit? That's belonging. And what's my purpose? What, where do I, what difference can I make is my purpose? Uh, but I don't think those needs are limited to Gen Z. I think we all have those needs. And when we try to find them in things that are temporal, when something goes askew, when, when those things go away, life goes sideways pretty quickly. I just had someone in my, in my office this week whose life had revolved around football. Uh, if you were to ask him these questions, he would say, I am a football player, I belong on this team, and my purpose as the captain of the team is to make it so that this team becomes all it can be, to achieve its potential, to, to win games and to make better players and, and, and just to, to, to strive and to thrive. So middle school, uh, high school, college, this was his life. This is where he found everything until he graduated in May. And he came to my office going, I don't really know who I am anymore. 
I don't really have a place to belong. I don't have a team. Uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. He was having a crisis. Today, through scripture and stories, I hope to be able to describe to you how the best environment to answer these questions, to meet these deep spiritual needs, is in Christ-centered community. So uh, if you have a Bible, whether uh, a paper Bible or on your phone, there's a, there should be a Bible uh, around this, the seats around you. Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to get there in a minute. Uh, it's easy to find Colossians, middle of the New Testament, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And let me give you a little context. The book of Colossians is actually uh, written by the Apostle Paul to people he had never met in a church that he didn't start. And it, it, there's nothing, no particular problem that he's addressing. He, he heard good things about this church. And he wants to encourage them. He, he says, I've heard about your faith, hope, and love. You guys are doing awesome. Keep it up. But he also warns them. He says, don't be held captive by, by empty philosophies that's based on human tradition. And also, don't cave into legalism. Because they were kind of feeling pressure from both sides. But he also uh, reminds them of who Jesus is and how they are to live in light of that. And in chapter three, he paints this picture of, of taking off old nasty clothes and putting on new clothes. Essentially, he's, co he's comparing and contrasting uh, vices, things that are affiliated with the old life, with virtues, things that, that are associated with new life in Christ. And then he tells us how we are to live out those things. And he expresses how community helps address our deepest needs. So let's pick up at verse 11. It says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God shows you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which, is, uh, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In my years of ministry, one of the things that I find myself doing often is explaining the concept of community, because community can mean different things to different people. And I like to describe it uh, as two separate things. So there's, there's structure and there's experience. 
So first, structural community uh, is a, a group of people living in the same place or uh, having a particular characteristic in common, like uh, common values and culture and interests or, or faith. That's why you have the business community, the Latino community, the deaf community. Those, that's structure. Those are groups. But community is also an experience. It's a sense of belonging, this feeling of fellowship with other people as a result of, of sharing common attitudes and, and interests and goals. Now, unfortunately, some structural communities are severely lacking in the experience of community. But if you find yourself a community where God is at work, a Christ-centered community, it can change your life. In any ministry setting, community is vital to individual and corporate health. In, in his book, uh, The Kingdom of Couches, my friend Will Walker says, community is not an event, activity, application point, or something we need in order to grow in our spiritual lives. Rather, it's the context in which all activities, application, and spiritual growth happens. Community is a big deal because it's really hard to grow spiritually on your own. We need other people to become who God intended and to realize our identity, belonging, and purpose. We need community. Paul lays this out uh, in, in the passage that we just read. Look at uh, verse 12. He says, you are God's chosen people. You are holy and dearly loved. If you are a Christian, your primary identity is found in Jesus, right? And, and we know this by reading scripture. The, the song says, I am who you say I am. And so we look to the word to know what is true about ourselves. But unfortunately, it's pretty easy to get distracted and deceived by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we find our identity in places that we shouldn't, in our career or in our success, or in our, our bank account, or in our athletic or academic achievements, whatever it is that we find our identity in that is not in Jesus can be super wrong. We, we end up finding, like, thinking a little too highly of ourselves. Sometimes we think we're better than we are, or we think we're worse than we are. And we need people to remind us what is true about our identity. We need other people to live out our identity. We need a context to do that. And Paul says that because of who you are, this is how you should behave. This is how you should act. This is how you should live out your identity in community. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This isn't a list of rules to follow, but virtues that are expressed by transformed people. And that results in transformed relationships. We need community in order to practice these values. See, I am super patient and really kind when I'm all by myself. But when I get around other people, that's where the rubber meets the road. And I go, oh, I have so many things to work on. That's because I can't see my own face. I need people in my life who I know and trust and who know me and who love me and want what's best for me, I need them to hold up a mirror so I can see 
what is real about me. I have to trust them enough to know that that's not a funhouse mirror that's distorted, that it's an accurate reflection of how I am living out my identity. And so sometimes those people encourage me, sometimes they challenge me, depending on my status. In the summer of 2006, my family and I spent uh, six weeks in Bar Harbor, Maine, home of Acadia National Park. Anyone been to Bar Harbor? I was corrected earlier. It's actually pronounced Bahaba. <laughs> Sorry to any Mainers out there if I butchered your accent. Uh, so we were there as part of a leadership adventure project through Lifelines, the outdoor ministry of, of crew. And for the first two weeks, uh, staff, uh, crew staff from around the country gathered uh, in, in Maine, and we learned uh, leadership principles, uh, how to facilitate groups, all kinds of cool stuff. But we also learned how to use outdoor activities like uh, hiking, biking, rock climbing, sea kayaking to teach spiritual truth. And so for the next four weeks, students showed up and we walked them through these activities uh, and we helped them learn and grow. And one day, uh, our small group was meeting on this big rock overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. I think there's, there's a picture of us there. Um, and, and we're just chilling. And my wife asked this super deep uh, connection question and it was profound. She asked, if you were a flavor of ice cream, what flavor would you be and why? <laughs> Super deep, right? Uh, no, it was, it's supposed to be an easy question. And some of the answers range from like, I'd be Rocky Road, because everywhere I go, there's like turbulence, um, to uh, vanilla, because I, I'm plain and simple, but most people still like me. Um, <laughs> but when it came time for, for Katie's turn, she just said, pass. And we moved on and we kept going around in the circle. And we had this norm in our group. It said if it happens in the group, it's addressed in the group. If anything kind of off seems a little bit suspicious or seems like there might be some unhealth here, we're going to address it. And the way we would address it is we would state the obvious and ask a question about it. And so Jenny did just that. She said, hey, Katie, I noticed that you passed when it was your turn. You want to tell us why? And Katie said, it's because there's no such thing as crap-flavored ice cream. <sighs> Katie uh, had just graduated from college in Boston, and she had a rough upbringing. She'd actually just come to faith in Christ her senior year of college, and so she was a brand-new baby Christian. But her self-esteem, based on, on her answer to the, the ice cream question, was really distorted. She was believing lies about her identity. But it was a great opportunity for our group to speak words of life to Katie, to say things like, Katie, because of Jesus, you are a child of the King you were adopted into the family of God, and so you are a sister. You are a daughter of the Most High God. You are holy and dearly loved. You are made in God's image, and God don't make no junk. That summer was so transformational for Katie. She, she, she kind of started living out her identity. And a year later, she joined staff with crew so that she could help other students know this Jesus who changed their identity. 
Okay, back to our passage. Um, it's important to remember that Paul was not addressing individuals when he wrote to the churches. He also wasn't addressing a mega church, like a room full of a thousand people like this. In the first 300 years of church history, the churches met in, in small groups, like between like a dozen and maybe up to 50 people in houses. And because the gospel is all about breaking down barriers, this group of people would be incredibly diverse. There never before in history had there been such a cross-section of society under one roof, worshiping God together. But like uh, I mentioned in the communion meditation, sometimes this, this, this created some challenges. But Paul reminds the people in, in uh, Colossians this in verse 11. He says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. If you're a Christian, no matter your family history, no matter your baggage, no matter your politics, no matter what, you are a member of the family of God. You belong. Now, it's important for family to treat each other accordingly. And here's what Paul says, in, in, starting in verse 13. He says, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Some translations of this verse say, uh, accept one another, tolerate one another. And I've been part of groups over, over the years um, where some people are easier to bear with and tolerate than others, right? There's, there's, there's always uh, one or two like EGR people. It's extra grace required, right? <laughs> you've, if you've been part of groups, you probably are thinking of that person right now. And if you're not, then maybe that person is you. <laughs> but I, so I've also been a part of groups where there's been some conflict and if it's a healthy group, conflict is worked out beautifully because love and forgiveness flows from the sense of belonging. That summer in Maine, our staff team bonded really quickly. We had this great sense of community. And during one particular staff meeting, Tara, who was in her mid-20s, she was new staff, she kept getting interrupted by Doug, the project director, the, the boss. And in a lot of communities, a lot of meetings like that, um, you know, a, a new, the newbie, if they were interrupted by the boss, they would probably just kind of grin and bear to suck it up or, or talk behind the back. Can you believe how I was disrespected like that? But, but Tara, after about the third or fourth time that this happened, that, that Doug interrupted her by like mansplaining something, Tara just, just called him on it. And I was like, oh boy, what's going to happen? And she said, Doug, you keep interrupting me, and it really ticks me off. Only she didn't say ticks. And Doug humbly stopped dead in his tracks, and he said, Tara, I am so sorry. This is something that I've been struggling with. I've been dealing with this in my character. I know that when I interrupted you, that you felt disrespected. You felt like your opinion didn't matter would you please forgive me? It was beautiful. 
Conflict was worked out in a way because Tara knew that she belonged, knew that she didn't have to fear like retribution or punishment or, or anything like that. She was part of the family. And so because of that, healthy conflict happened because of belonging. So we need community because it meets our, our need for identity and belonging, but it also reminds us of our ultimate purpose. The Westminster Catechism is a curriculum that was written like in the 1600s uh, to teach the, the, the foundations of the Christian faith. And it's written in kind of a Q&A format. And the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In modern English, it would, it would read, what is our purpose? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. Now, okay, I've heard this term a lot. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, the best explanation I've ever heard is that, that God's character, God's attributes never change, right? He, God remains constant, but, the, but people's view of God, people's perception of God changes all the time. And it's highly influenced by followers of Jesus, how well they live out these things that they claim to be true. And so we have an opportunity to show the world what God is really like. Can they see God for who he really is? We get to enhance his reputation. That's what it means to glorify God. So, so how do we make him look good? Well, Paul explains one way of doing so in, in verse 16. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we participate in community, we get to use our gifts to serve the body and to glorify God. So like Paul says here, we, we can teach and provide wise counsel. We can use our gift of hospitality or of giving. We can foster an environment of worship and prayer where people can express their adoration for and, and gratitude toward and, and dependence on the Lord. All of these things glorify God, we were adopted into the family of God in order to glorify God. That is what we, why we exist, and it's how we live out our purpose. Paul wraps up by saying, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that is the ultimate perspective shift, because guess what? It's not about you. Biblical community begins with a deep conviction that living for ourselves is unsatisfying. And this isn't easy because it not only goes against our nature, but it's countercultural. Western culture celebrates individualism, not, not self-denial for the good of others and the glory of God. And one of the most powerful memories that I have of our time in Maine was uh, we took the students on this long hike and we, we hiked him to the bottom of this hill. And at the bottom, we blindfolded them and we told them, you cannot say a word until your blindfold is removed. And so one by one, we hiked them up this hill and sat them down at the top of the hill, which was a, a plateau. And 
it took a while to get them up there one by one. And we made them sit blindfolded and in silence for an uncomfortably long time. But then when we removed their blindfolds, they looked around and they saw that they were sitting within an arm's length of each other the whole time. And people started to tear up. And I was like, what are you, what's going on? What are you feeling right now? And one guy, this 20-year-old dude, said, I just realized that this is how I live my life every day, surrounded by people, but completely isolated. Ever since COVID, I've, I've talked to a bunch of people who are spiritually isolated. They'll come into my office or they'll talk to me on the phone, really dealing with some heavy stuff. And they'll say, I, I got nobody in my life I can talk to about this. It's really sad. The book of James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, isolation not only keeps you from living out your identity, belonging, and purpose, but it keeps you in the shadows. It, it makes you believe lies. It keeps you enslaved to sin. And it makes you subject to, to guilt and shame and fear. Look at what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But here's the good news. In confession, confessing our sins to each other, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. Folks, we need each other. We need community. It's possible to sit in a room like this, to be shoulder to shoulder with people, to experience worship and a sermon, and be isolated. It's possible to leave today not really living out your identity, belonging, and purpose with no change happening in your life, no spiritual growth because you have no community. The people at Central who Jenny and I have known the longest uh, and who know us the best are the ones that we've had some kind of small group experience with, either in a life group or an adult community or a, a Bible study or some kind of leadership class or, or anything like that. Uh, they're the people uh, who have helped us raise our kids. We literally call some of them aunt and uncle. Um, they've walked us through hard times. They have reminded us of God's goodness. They've, they've corrected us and encouraged us and laughed and cried with us. And we want to give everybody a chance to experience Christ-centered community. And so over the next six weeks, we're gonna give you a shot to do that. If you are not currently in some level of community, here's a perfect opportunity. If you didn't see it on the way in or if you're watching online, out in Grand Central, there's a big banner. Uh, we're starting a new life group series called Under the Influence. And it's a series designed to help you encounter, experience, and embrace the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here's the kicker. We want you to do it in a Christ-centered community. 
And so if you're already in a life group, go ahead and grab a book, one group per person. Um, if, you're, if you want to join a life group, go out there and find the information. There's, there talks about our website. Uh, there's a link on our, our site for how you, can, how you can sign up for a group. Uh, and you can grab a book too. Uh, so I'm going to challenge you. If, if, if you're taking a book today, that's great. It means you're going to be in a life group. If you have no plans to be in a life group, keep your hands off my books. Okay? That's how serious I am about people experiencing community. Now, a couple of reminders. If you, um, if you need prayer, thank you for filling out your prayer uh, request on the communication card, but there's people, there'll be people down here to pray with you after this service. Pray for you and pray with you. Uh, another reminder, reveal night. Tonight at six o'clock, a chance for extended worship and prayer together. I want to leave you with a paraphrase of the last few verses of today's passage. So let's stand and let this be your benediction today. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master, Jesus. Thanking God the Father every step of the way. Amen. Hey, if we could get like 20 people to stay here, we need to clear these chairs out uh, for reveal night. So if you can stick around and help us load some chairs up, that would be great. Otherwise, the rest of you have a great week.